0: You may be seated again. Let me invite you to turn again your copy of God's Word, this time uh, to our New Testament passage. You can find our uh, text on page 815 of the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, if you're using your own Bible, of course, this is Matthew uh, chapter 10. Our text this morning is verses 16 to 25. Uh, last week, we resumed uh, a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. A sermon series. It'll take us uh, multiple years, if not parts of multiple years. Uh, and we return in Matthew's gospel to a section in which Jesus is teaching. No longer is Matthew telling us what Jesus is doing, now Matthew is faithfully recording the teaching of Jesus. So we're going to be in chapter 10 a few weeks, but if I were to teach one whole sermon on chapter 10, I think the title would be Disciples on Mission. As we're seeing in, in different ways in Matthew chapter 10. First nine chapters, it's all Jesus doing everything. And then in chapter 10, he gets his apostles and he sends them out with the, the message of the gospel. And we saw last week in uh, verses 5 to 15, some specific instructions for those 12 men as they go out two by two and how they are to conduct themselves on that mission. He continues to talk about mission in our verses this morning, but he expands it not only to the Jewish audience, but he speaks of a a broader mission context beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and out to the Gentiles, to the very ends of the earth, some places where some of his apostles didn't go. So we rightly understand that we're now entering sort of a different section, a different point of disciples on mission, and here these the application can be pressed closer to home for us. None of us in this room are apostles, but if we are following Jesus, we are his disciples. And so we are disciples on mission. His words are for us this morning. So as you follow along with me in your copy of God's word, uh, Matthew 10, uh, verses 16 uh, down to 25. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Do you pray with me again? Our Lord, we open your word, and pray that you would open our eyes. And you would unstop our ears. And you would soften our often hard and stiff hearts. Lord, we desire as your people to hear your life-giving voice this morning. Give us instruction as your disciples. Give us directions as your followers. But more than all of that, give us Christ. Give us Jesus. Our hearts and souls are needy for him today. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. They threw me to the wolves. What does that make you think when somebody says a phrase like that? She threw me to the wolves. He left me out for the wolves. It's not a, a good mental image, is it? It's not a positive experience. If you were to describe somebody else throwing you to the wolves, they left you out to dry. They hung you out to dry. They All this, these other images of being abandoned, Right? Being betrayed, uh, being left alone to suffer and die without aid, without assistance, without help, right? It's nobody in their right mind would ever want to be thrown to the wolves. But what if we take that one phrase and we change just one word of that phrase? Now, you'd love for me to change the word wolves, right? That'd be great. Get that out of the sentence. We've got to keep the word wolves and we'll change the word throw, how does this sentence read? He sent me to the wolves. That's a very different sentence, isn't it? That's a, a very different idea. It still has all of the same danger implied. Right? Nobody wants to be thrown, sent, left, whatever it is, around wolves. But all of a sudden, to go amidst the wolves, not thrown or left, but sent. That changes everything, doesn't it? That changes how we understand what we're doing in the first place in the midst of wolves. You see, God, our God, does not throw us to the wolves. In the words of Jesus, his followers are sent to the wolves, sheep amidst the wolves. What I want to show you this morning in our passage is God's purpose in sending his church, his followers, his disciples among the wolves. The wolves. And that purpose is simple, that God allows opposition to his gospel because of the opportunities that it brings. God allows opposition to his gospel because of the opportunities it brings. Or if you want the the sermon in three words, it's opposition brings opportunity. That's what Jesus is telling us uh, in this text. Before we jump into the points of the sermon, just look at the, the opening image with me the opening image of sheep among the wolves. So what's the point of that? Well, the point is to show his followers that they're about to go to a very dangerous place, (laughs) that Jesus is sending them out in one sense, unarmed, unequipped, and unprotected for the wickedness, the evil, the attacks, the persecution that they're about to face. He is telling his followers, I am sending you, I'm placing you in a vulnerable place. You have taken my name and now I reward you by making you as vulnerable as a sheep amongst the wolves. And so he gives us some early instruction on how to behave as sheep in the midst of wolves. He brings up two other animals in that first verse. So famously, the sheep are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is our application, right? From the jump, Jesus gives us this almost proverb-like saying, for how the sheep are to behave amongst the wolves, are to be like a serpent, but not just crafty like a serpent, because if we're crafty like a serpent without the innocence of the dove, well, then we're just like the serpent in the garden, right? That's not what he's telling us to be like. But he also tells us innocence like a dove, but not foolish or gullible or naive like a dove. So what is it what does it look like for sheep to take on these character traits. And honestly, a question I've wrestled with all week is when are we called to be wise and when are we called to be innocent? I mean, sometimes we're both, but other times we find ourselves in difficult situations where we don't sort of know which path to follow. I hope as we look through the points and the text itself, we will see that this opening verse functions almost like a proverb that we apply in certain ways, in certain certain circumstances or situations, we apply different ways in, in other circumstances. So keep that in the back of your mind as we work through these verses. Our main idea, opposition, brings opportunity. Those are the two points of the sermon. Opposition, point one, and opportunity, point two. Or to be a little more detailed, the opposition from the wolves, point one, and the opportunity for the sheep, point two. So let's take them each in turn. First, we see in our text opposition from the wolves. So after this introductory verse, verse 16, Jesus sort of dives into the details, and he begins the first word of verse 17, beware. Now, if somebody sent me as a sheep in the midst of wolves, I don't think I would need that verse, right? <laughs> sure, I, I think I, I think I got that. I'm going to be terrified. I'm going to be warned about these wolves. But of course, it's an image. We're talking about people amidst other people. So what are the types of people, or maybe we should say the types of opposition that Jesus warns his disciples to beware of? I want to give you three types of opposition we see in these verses that they face from the wolves. First, we see in verse 17 a religious opposition. We see here a religious uh, opposition. Continue with that verse. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Synagogues, the house of worship for the Jewish people of the day, continuing, of course, uh, to today. And Jesus is telling his disciples that they should expect a type of opposition coming from the religious courts of their day. We don't know exactly what this would look like. It it seems to imply some form of judgment, some form of, of court case, that the disciples would have to face uh, opposed by the leaders of the Jewish synagogue of the day. Now they shouldn't be surprised by this. Opposition to Jesus has come from a number of places so far in Matthew but most recently it has been from the Pharisees. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the high priest and on and on oppose Jesus and these verses will will continue to be true, not only for Christ, but for his followers. You remember in the book of Acts, uh, his followers, the apostles, are beaten. Do you remember who they're beaten by? They're beaten by the Pharisees. A couple chapters later, uh, Stephen, uh, who is faithfully preaching and proclaiming Christ, is stoned, again, by the religious leaders of his day. I think Jesus is speaking to a particular moment of the, uh, the apostles declaring the Jewish Messiah has come and many of the hearers rejecting that Messiah. But I also think he shows us a principle that there is often religious opposition to the true gospel. I think we can look in most generations in church history and see some level of religious leadership or opposition to the true gospel of Jesus, even up into our day. I'm not going to name any names, but you know as well as I do that there are those in religious positions of religious authority, be it groups or churches or denominations, who oppose and at times even mock Bible-believing, Christ-trusting Christians. Sometimes it is jarring to have opposition come from religious leaders who seem to be using the very name of Christ. And yet it was true in their day, and it's true in our day. It is the first opposition that we, as the people of God, are to beware of. That's only in verse 17. Verse 18 gives us a second type of opposition, and that is government opposition. Look at verse 18. And, a different kind, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So here are now the, the sort of civil, civic leaders of the day. Do you remember when Jesus came? Who was most threatened at the arrival and the birth of baby Jesus? Well, it was the king, right? King Herod versus King Jesus. The king with all the earthly might and power is threatened by a baby in a manger. Jesus will continue to face opposition and even persecution from civil government leaders. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, is repeatedly brought before Gentile leaders to give account. And it is true today that believers throughout the world, Christians face persecution from the government. It takes different shapes in different places, doesn't it? We have brothers and sisters in Christ in in countries where they are viciously and violently opposed by government authorities. We don't really face that type of persecution in our day, and yet there is what some have called a type of soft persecution in which the church in the Western world uh, may not be physically threatened and harmed, but at times there is sort of this push or this pressure this sort of soft feeling of opposition that presses against the people of God because of our faith in Christ. Beware, disciples of Jesus, of religious opposition, of government opposition. And there's the third one, and it may be the hardest of all. We see this in verse 21. I'll call it family opposition. Look at verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Don't skip over those words. It's one thing to have unknown religious authorities declaring your faith uh, is a threat to them. It's another thing for far off government officials to persecute you it's a whole nother thing for your own child to betray you for your own father to turn and disown you and in fact turn you over because of your faith again we we see this in different ways in the world I mean I know many of you have heard stories in uh, the context of other religions That converts to Christianity, when they trust their, when they put faith in Christ, when they receive baptism, they are shunned and hated and pushed away by their family. Some of you may have experienced that in your own Christian walk, in your own conversion to Christ. If you came out of an unbelieving family, you have experienced the wedge of the gospel pressed between you and your 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 biological closest earthly family members that wedge can divide father and son mother and daughter it can divide brother and sister it can divide husband and wife and jesus of course knows this and he counters this opposition he counters all of this opposition but but this one in particular and skip ahead to verse 25 I'm come back to this later but I want you to note the very last verses of our passage where he says those of his household whose household Jesus's household so he ends with this metaphor again we'll come back to it in a little bit but I just want to make the point that Jesus is the head of the household of God And that those of his followers who have been kicked out of earthly, physical, biological households are welcomed into the household of God. That Jesus, by saving sinners from eternal death, bring us not only to the promise of eternal life, but here and now bring us into his family. He makes the church, the household, and the family of God. And I want to challenge you this morning to think differently than you have before about the church. That there are people that have come this morning not out of the overflow of their hearts, not out of relational fullness with Christian parents and siblings and children and spouses and all the rest. But people come to to gather in the household of God, the family of God, and they have no other spiritual family. That there are people that are with us this morning that are here desperately needing God's family. And I want to challenge you, don't come to church. I might step on some toes. <laughs> but don't come to church and look around and see who you can be friends with. Right? I hope many of you are friends in the church. Don't get me wrong. But that's not the image God gives us as church members, is it? The image he gives us is brothers and sisters in Christ. And you and I need brothers and sisters in Christ to face religious and government and especially family opposition. What might it look like for you at times to prioritize your spiritual family over your biological family for the sake of those who don't have believers in their biological family? There are folks in this church who on special holidays open their home to those who don't have somewhere to go. They open their home on Thanksgiving. They open their home at Christmas. Some of you even open open your home on the most sacred family holiday of the year, Mother's Day. (laughs) Because there's something more important, isn't there, than physical mothers and children, and that is spiritual mothers and children. Y'all, we cannot face the opposition that will come to the church and the people of God without one another. We are not strong enough. And if all we do is come to church to sing songs and to hear a sermon and to maybe make a friend or two, we are leaving everybody else out to dry. We are brothers and sisters under the faithful work of our elder brother, under the fatherhood of God. And as sheep amongst the wolves, we need that brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. So how much danger do these sheep really face in the midst of wolves? A lot, right? The the, the danger is coming from every side. And in case you missed it, here's Jesus' summary in verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Well, that kind of covers it, right? Right? If we missed any opposition, well, Jesus covers it here. Now, all doesn't mean every single person. Of course not. But it means all kinds of people, all categories of people. Religious leaders, government leaders, even your own family. Why are we hated? Verse 22, for my name's sake. Because you, dear Christian, have taken on a name that is hated. That name is Christ. That name is Christian. So before we go on to think of our opportunities, I want to pause here and just ask a very basic question in our sermon so far. Are you a sheep or are you a wolf? You might think, well, pastor, I'm neither. Come on. I mean, I I might not be a a confessing member of a, a gospel preaching believing church, but I'm not a wolf. Well, in this in this metaphor, right, there's only two. He uses other metaphors of other types of people, but there's just two here. It's not my words or his. But I want you to see that Jesus sends vulnerable and helpless sheep in order to bring wolves into his kingdom. That that there's people in your life it's hard for them to be in your life. (laughs) And it's as if God is calling them to be sheep amongst the wolves because he is sending through them His gracious word to you. You might not have rejected them. I mean, if you're here this morning, you haven't rejected the institutional church, but you may have rejected God in your heart. So what does God do? He sends vulnerable people to suffer in order that you this morning might hear the gospel of grace. Jesus makes rooms, makes room for wolves because listen up, every one of us <laughs> was once a wolf in need of the forgiveness of sins that he offers. So he shows us how to beware, beware, excuse me. He gives us the opposition from the wolves, but in the perfect timing and purposes of God, the opposition itself serves a greater purpose. And that's our second point. The opportunity for the sheep. The opportunity for the for the sheep. Let's, let's say something that's obvious here. Jesus never promises that his mission will be smooth sailing and easy going for us. He, he, he was put to death on the cross. How could we ever expect to follow in his footsteps and have an easy mission? Sheep among the wolves are vulnerable, helpless, dependent creatures, susceptible to the attack of the wolves. And yet, In the providence of God, this is the very way he brings opportunities for his church and for his people. We had three oppositions. I want to give you three opportunities this morning. The first opportunity is in verses 19 to 20, and that is the opportunity to witness faithfully, to witness faithfully. The context of these verses is back in our second opposition, that is facing Roman officials. So what does it feel like for uh, minority people of God to be facing the powerful authorities of their day? Well, uh, to, to steal an illustration, it feels like sheep in the midst of wolves. It's terrifying, right? Well, It's why Jesus has to say, do not be anxious. When you see that in scripture, don't think, well, of course I'm not anxious, You think, man, I I guess I'm supposed to be anxious about this. But because Jesus, what he does for me, I can overcome that pressing fear and anxiety. Now, why, if helpless people are dragged before religious leaders and authorities and are required to speak on behalf of their God, why should those people not be afraid? Well, because Jesus will speak through them. Because Jesus will give you what you need to say. Look look back at verse 19. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That's passive. It's not because we don't know who gives it to us. No, it's God, of course. God gives it to you. And if it's not clear, verse 20 explains. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Do you see how in the providence of God he turns? the very opposition of his gospel into the opportunity to declare and proclaim his grace. Again, we see this in the New Testament time and time again when the Apostle Paul is dragged before one Gentile authority after another. And what does he do? He talks about Jesus. He talks about the Messiah. He's given an audience he would have never had if not for the opposition. And he entrusts himself to God to speak through him. All Christians desire to speak about Jesus. We all wish we did it more. We all wish we had more opportunity to speak to our neighbor, our co-worker, our classmate about Christ. And you know, when I read the literature about evangelism, the biggest reason that Christians give for not evangelizing as much as we wish we would is this, number one, I don't know what to say. (laughs) I don't know what to say. Well, y'all, here's your answer. (laughs) You should study and you should learn and you should memorize verses and you should have something you want to say, but what a comfort to know that God speaks through us, that opening our mouth is an act of faith. It's an act of believing the promise of God. It's an act of thinking, I don't exactly know how to answer that hard question, but I will open my, my mouth, I will begin to speak, and I will trust that God will give me the words. And I know if you're a Christian, you've had that experience. You've come away from talking to someone that doesn't trust Christ, and you thought, man, I don't know how I answered that question. I don't know how I remembered that verse, but somehow I did. You can testify, but then if you're like me, at least, the next time it comes up, you're afraid again. <laughs> I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna know what to say again. When we witness for Christ, we are trusting God to give us the words to say. It is an act of faith. It's an opportunity that he promises he will be with us in. So that's our first uh, opportunity to faithfully witness. Uh, Our second opportunity as we continue to move down through the verses is an opportunity to endure patiently. This is verse 22. To endure patiently. This is what we just sang about in that hymn, Faith of Our Fathers. Verse 22 reads, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, a little theology work real quick. Uh, Jesus is not saying that his work is not enough in saving us and that you have to make sure that you work really hard to make it all the way to the end and add your work to his so that together in heaven, we know you're going to be good because he did it and you did it. No, no. Jesus saves once for all. He saves by faith alone. He will uh, preserve his own unto the end. Praise God for it. This verse means that our endurance does not earn salvation. It simply shows the salvation we've already received. Our good works are what our confession calls the fruit and evidence of a lively faith. So don't get hung up on that. Rather, what does it look like for sheep to endure wolves? Yikes. What does that look like? Well, it means to receive attacks and hatred? It means to be wounded. It means to be threatened repeatedly. It means maybe even to be put to death. And it means receiving all that to never return it in kind. To never repay evil for evil, but in the midst of it, to keep following Jesus. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to a number of churches, and he speaks to the church in Pergamum who has endured persecution, and he says, You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. We are threatened. What's, how do we respond? What's that response to threat? Fight or flight? We want to take off and run away or we want to bow up and fight. And Jesus tells us, no, it's neither of those. It's endure. It's patiently, faithfully endure. One of my favorite uh, books uh, is called uh, Lonesome Dove. Uh, Some of you have seen the show uh, on this cowboy series. Uh, It is uh, these heroic cowboys on this cattle drive uh, and they've, you know, all the good stuff, good guys shooting bad guys, right? Big, strong guys on horses and guns and all the, all nine yards, right? It's got everything sort of manly, heroic you would want. But I, I heard an interview a few months ago with a literary critic and he said, the heroes of Lonesome Dove aren't the men, it's actually the women. And what he meant is that in the Wild West, many of those women are in incredibly vulnerable positions. Especially if they're not married, there's, there aren't many options, for what they can do and he says they're the real heroes because heroism is not what we accomplish but it's what we endure. I think that's beautiful coming in a Christian sense, right? But What are we as sheep hoping to accomplish in the midst of wolves, right? I would have set up this grand kingdom of sheep and rule over the wolves in might and power. Of course not. No, we, we by faith Endure and and press on. I wonder this morning if God is not calling some of you to endure some opposition. And you are ready to give in. That You are standing firm for Christ, but you don't know how much longer you can stand. (laughs) You don't know how much longer you can keep his name on your lips. You don't know if you are strong enough. The fangs of the wolves keep coming out. And he reminds us, the one who endures to the end will be saved. None can snatch us out of his hand. Opposition is an opportunity to endure patiently in faith. There's a final opportunity we have for us this morning that Jesus gives in verse 23. This third opportunity is to flee strategically. Now, if you're taking notes, you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you just, Jesus has just challenged all of us to endure. And now you're, you're saying that maybe opposition is an opportunity to, to flee. Let me take you back to verse 16. Different circumstances require different applications of the wisdom of God. And sometimes we are wise as serpents, and other times we are leaning more towards innocent as doves. Or as one commentator put it better than I can, Jesus calls his followers to bravery, but not foolishness. That's good, isn't it? He calls us to bravery, not foolishness. I named this point, uh, flee strategically. I'm not talking about the strategy, Of the disciples. No, they're, they're the ones who are persecuted and who are chased away. Uh, What we see here is that by opposition, do you see what happens? Sorry, I should have read this in verse 22, he said 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. All right. Don't, don't pack up your bag and go home. No, take the gospel to the next town so that by the very opposition that our enemy seeks to leverage to shut down the the witness to Christ, it is spread from town to town, from house to house, from village to village. There's this. I know some of you parents have been there. uh, Downtown Asheville, there's a Amos, the Asheville Museum of Science, and it has this water table for kids to play in, and it has water flowing as if from a mountain, sort of down through town to the ocean. There's a river, and kids can go play in it and get their hands wet, and you can put up these little walls and blocks, and you can you can play by moving the water around, right? By redirecting the stream. I mean, it, it's sort of a rush. It's like playing God, right? <laughs> You're up there moving the stream around, right? Who survives? Who dies? Kids love to play on that. That was kind of morbid, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> Opposition that we face in the church. It's like those little dams that God is putting in front of the, the flow of His gospel. That He is moving life giving water from one house to another, from one heart to another, from one town or country or nation to the other. So, just as I want you to wonder where you might be called to endure right now, I also want you to wonder where you might be called to go next. Are, are there neighbors that you have gone to for months and years? And when they see you walk up to their house, they close the blinds. <laughs> right? they, they, don't want, they don't want your message. They don't want your gospel. They don't want you around as a, as a witness to Christ and the type of life that he changes and creates in us. Maybe that just means you need to take your time and energy next door. Maybe you need to go somewhere down the street. Maybe you need to change your prayer a little bit. Maybe you're afraid your witness for Christ will mean you're going to lose your job. And then how are those people going to hear about Jesus? Maybe you need to receive that and see it as God's strategy to move you somewhere else. To take your light and your salt somewhere else. Maybe at school you have kind of been turned away by a certain group of friends. They don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hang out with Little Miss Goody Two Shoes, right? (laughs) They're done with your God, they're done with your Bible. They're done with your Jesus. Maybe that's God moving you to some new friends that need to hear the message of life. This is, in fact, what he does, again, in the book of Acts. When the church experiences persecution in chapter 8, it says that the the disciples were scattered. Where were they scattered to? Do you remember? Judea and Samaria, the very places that God said in chapter 1 he was going to send his witnesses. How does God send his witnesses? through opposition through persecution Jesus sums up all of these opportunities in the last two verses this final image and he just tells us that if they opposed your master they're going to oppose you it's as simple as that if they opposed your master they're going to oppose you and as we as we close this morning I I hope your mind is beginning to change in how you understand opposition to the gospel. That you and I will see opposition as part of following Jesus. It doesn't mean he's left us. It's the opposite. It means we're his. It means we have his name. It means we are adopted as sons and daughters. It means that we no longer face the wrath of God. What's earthly wrath compared to that? G. Campbell Morgan, a well-known preacher, said it like this. If there is no opposition in the place where you are serving, then you are serving in the wrong place. I would put the word maybe in there, but he says it stronger than me. Maybe you are serving in the wrong place. God allows opposition to his gospel because it opens the door to witness, to endurance, and to spreading his message. It's a scary phrase, thrown to the wolves. But it's a whole different phrase when we think that we are sent to the wolves. If you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, your God is sending you. And he is sending you into opposition. And every opposition you face, he meets with a promise. He gives you his word. He strengthens you to endure. And he is with you always. Brothers and sisters, let us step out. In faith, trusting the very God who sends us to the midst of wolves. Let's pray. Our Lord, in our own fleshly weakness, we are terrified. Or maybe some of us are bolder than we really will be come tomorrow morning. It's easy, oh God, to hear these words. Frankly, it can be easy to speak these words. Lord, you will scatter us to neighborhoods and schools, to mom's groups, to workplaces, to sports teams, to orchestras. You will scatter us throughout Asheville and Buncombe County and beyond tomorrow. I pray you scatter us with a renewed mind that we see opposition for what it really is, the vain Barking of chained wolves whose days are numbered. Embolden us as your people to rest in Christ our King and step out in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to close essentially singing that very same prayer. Uh, You can find our closing hymn in your yellow folders in the rack in front of you. Uh, It is number 42, entitled O Church Arise.